Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. This is our new format. We're actually a format with two shows under the umbrella of Progressive News Network. Uh, and we alternate periodically. Uh, right this week we're doing Progressive News Network, which is more of a news, political show. But we also have our companion show, which is the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. I am the producer and the host of both shows. And today I think we have a really interesting show for you. All right. First of all, we have a wonderful interview from our founder and executive producer, Rick Spizak, where he conducts an interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee of the Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania. Professor Lee always has wonderful and and really interesting insights. Uh, She has made a special study of the impact that extreme right-wing groups have had on not only on politics, but how that's reverberated in terms of academia and throughout our culture and society. And Professor Lee, as always, delivers this commentary with dry humor and wit. So that's part one of our show. Part two is the big story, and I will discuss uh, what I consider to be, not just me, the judicial, the dishonest judicial scam that is originalism. Now, I, I can hear the, the censors and, and the church ladies at the Federalist Society just chafing at the bit. How dare she attack originalism? Well, of course I dare. It's my First Amendment right. But the fact is, originalism has, it's not just a scam, it has absolutely no academic or intellectual uh, legitimacy whatsoever. It's not just my opinion, it's also the opinion of some founders as well as major law professors, uh, not the least, is Professor Erwin uh, Shemarinsky, uh, who is the dean of the U- UCLA Law School, um, and he has, you know, he puts it very bluntly, all right? Um, according to Shemarinsky, or quote, originalism is the tool of choice for conservatives determined to limit human rights to a certain subset, namely what – well, actually, it's not Chemerinsky. It's my – let me back up here. I'm My bad. I made a mistake here. And I apologize, okay? I'm in the process of getting new glasses, and so let me get this <laughs> this little thing that magnifies. I thought I saw quotes, and I didn't. Okay, this is my opinion. My opinion is originalism really is the tool of choice for conservatives determined to limit human rights to a certain subset, namely white, Christian, straight males. Okay? It's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. But unlike a lot of Republicans, this show will actually have real documentation to back up that opinion and not misleading documentation either. This is my opinion that, again, originalism is the tool of choice for conservatives determined to limit human rights to a certain subset, namely white, Christian, straight, or cisgendered males. There's no other logical outcome to originalism if you take that basic premise and follow it uh, uh, to its preordained logical conclusion. Now, while all of this may sound purely academic, the ramifications of allowing this fraudulent theory to continue 
will eventually result in the complete erosion of human rights for minorities. And again, in my opinion, that is the target. That is the goal of the GOP, make no mistake about it, and their corporate masters. So that's the second story, and that story may actually have more than one part. It's, there's a lot of information there, and I don't want to overload you. And then, of course, we will have our Jackass of the Week Awards, uh, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So with no further ado, I will get to uh, Rick Spizak's interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee. Waiting for it. Well, we're still waiting for it. Sorry for the delay, folks. Hmm. Okay, we're still waiting. I'm sorry for the delay. We'll wait a little while longer. Hmm. Wow. It seems we're having a technical problem here. I'm watching as the clock goes down on Rick's interview, but it's it's not doing anything. Okay. Um, in fact, it won't let me turn it off. All right. I'm not sure what to do with this. Okay. Seems like we're having some real technical difficulties today. I'm going to continue with our show, and hopefully... Hopefully you guys can still hear me. If the interview comes up, we'll just go with it right now. It won't even let me turn it off. So I don't know what's happening on Blog Talk Radio. Um, we will keep going. If it looks like you can't, if if upon the completion of the show, when I play it back, um, it's still not running, then I'll have to redo it. So I apologize for the technical difficulties. I Again, I think the problem's at Blog Talk Radio, and I have no idea what it is. So if that's the case, we will run that wonderful interview at a later date, and I do apologize. So let's go to our big story, originalism being a scam. Okay? So there's been a lot of talk about originalism. All right? You you hear it nonstop. Uh, you can't go to law school these days without being lectured about how originalism is the the judicial theory of the land, um, it, and to the point where it's literally uh, been elevated to almost religious dogma. You know, and we have a couple of conservatives to thank for that. Um, that really brought its lime life. Of course, Robert Bork was one of them. Uh, you know, back in the 80s, he was uh, nominated for the Supreme Court, and he was turned down, thank God. Uh, you know, there are people that love Bork, and they will say that, you know, his legal 
theories are beyond reproach, I disagree. All right, I think that Professor Bork has a brilliant had a brilliant mind, but I also think that he used that brilliant mind to try and provide some false legitimacy for theories which really do uh, serve the cause of racist, misogynist, homophobes, and so on and so forth. You know, all of this in terms of originalism is about denying basic human rights to minorities, period. Okay, so, but it's so inundated, our national discussion, that even during her confirmation hearing, alleged liberal, now Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, uh, during a confirmation hearing, once infamously said, quote, we are all originalists. Okay, I would maintain that Justice Kagan's wrong. Okay, I would say the originalism school has no legitimacy, and I'm not the only one. So let's move on with our documentation. Um, and I'm going to check back on the studio, see what's going on. Nothing is happening with that interview, so let's move on. So there's a lot of argument about this, all right? Um, But even alleged liberals have embraced originalism, I I think in a bogus effort to try and prove that they're impartial, um, or to use a buzzword, objective. But, you know, there's no such thing as 100% objectivity, first of all. Even in scientific studies, even scientists, as disciplined as they are, know that nothing, the, the, the most... Uh, the most carefully run double-blind study still does not have 100% objectivity. That's why you have uh, a standard error of measurement. You know, you're basically, the scientists are basically uh, indicating that, you know, we know our bias is going to enter in somehow, even if we're not aware of it at the time. If scientists can be that honest, why can't lawyers and jurists? Good question. So this is a piece that I found in and it's part of their big idea series. You should check it out. And this was written um, by Eric J. Seagull. Now, Professor Seagull is the Kathy and Lawrence Ash Professor of Law at Georgia State University. Um, he is also the author of a book titled Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Now, this piece was a uh, – excuse me was aptly titled Judicial Originalism as Myth. I agree. It was published in February of 2017. So there's a quote here. It starts with by Paul Brest in 1981. And the quote says the following, quote, It is simply anti-democratic to conceal something as fundamental as the nature of constitutional decision-making, especially if concealment is motivated by the fear that the citizenry wouldn't stand for the practice if it knew the truth. If the court can't admit what it's doing, then it shouldn't do it. And, you know, I agree. I think that originalism is a way to conceal the fact that far too many judges really serve the interest of conservative, white, Christian, straight males and big corporate interests. They just do. Again, my opinion. But the doctrine of originalism is basically, according to Professor Siegel, judges claim that they identify 
the original meaning of the United States Constitution and then rely on that original meaning. Okay, that's nice. How in the world can they know the original meaning? How, and it goes further, how in the world can they know original intent? Do these justices that are, especially conservative justices, Scalia, Alito, Scalia is dead, but Alito, um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Connie, uh, Barrett, do they possess some magical ability to, to basically to figure, to, to look into the minds of founding fathers that have been dead for over 200 years and magically know what their intent was or by such an, uh, basically such a, a difficult reading, they can look at the grammar and, and figure out what the words they, that the founders used at, meant at the time that they were used. I mean, you know, I could tell you right now, there are Torah scholars that are clearer than these lawyers and judges. Okay, this is approaching religious dogma at this point, not true rule of law. And again, they mentioned that how Elena Kagan, at the time of her confirmation hearing, stated that, quote, we are all originals, end quote, as documented by Legal Times. .typepad.com. Okay. Now, there are also some prominent professors, according to Prester Siegel, um, that have basically made the statement in some of the most elite law reviews that, quote, originalism is our law. And this is as documented by papers. I can't really see this. <laughs> Papers.ssm.com. You can look up the article yourself and find the documentation. So, you know, Siegel said it very clearly. He said, quote, this genuflection toward the original meaning of the Constitution is, however, at best misleading and at worst a sham. I agree. Uh, Siegel goes on to say, quote, what the words of the document meant to the people living at the time is just one of many different factors judges use to decide constitutional cases. Okay. And Siegel goes on to say, quote, so-called original meaning almost never drives the results in litigated cases, but instead is used by judges to justify results they reached on other grounds. End quote. I'm going to read that one again. It's very telling. Okay, let me have a little coffee here. Okay. Professor Siegel said, quote, so-called original meaning almost never drives the results in litigated cases, but instead is used by judges to justify results they reached on other grounds. Okay? End quote. That sounds real legitimate, not. You have another quote here from Judge Richard Posner. It says the following, quote, there has never been a time when the courts of the United States behave consistently in accordance with the ideal, end quote, described by originalists. Siegel goes on to say, quote, there are strong reasons why judges never consistently used originalism to decide hard cases. Okay. And, excuse me, it makes sense. Okay, if you take the original intent at the time the Constitution was written, the only people that had any rights, including voting rights, were white Christian men who owned property. Period. So if you were going to take originalism 
to its logical conclusion, we'd have a society that the rest of us would despise because the only people that would have both voting rights and really any constitutional rights whatsoever would be white Christian men who owned property. Think about that for a minute. Ah, excuse me, folks. Um, and having a few problems here today. Think about what I'm saying here. All right? You know, we have elevated the Constitution to basically a, a dogmatic document that is revered in really a pseudo-religious sense, and it shouldn't be. This document was written by very flawed men. Many of them were wealthy in their own right. They were all white. They were all either agnostic or Christian. None of them were religious minorities. It reflected their interest. And talk about bias. When they wrote all these pretty words about you know, human rights, basically, you have to remember that quite a few of them, especially the ones that had no problem with slavery, did not view the rest of us as fully human. Okay? We do not want to go back to the original meaning. But let's move on. Now, there have been judges that have basically, um, you know, tried to make sense of this. So, again, think of the world, the country we would have if originalism was followed to its uh, logical conclusion. Blacks and other people of color would not have a right to vote, and they would have no other civil rights, human rights. Let's call them what they are, human rights. Neither would women, neither would the LGBTQ community, neither would religious minorities or those who choose not to be religious at all. That's not democracy. Okay? Now, one of the things Professor Siegel pointed out was really what he called embarrassing attempts to make the landmark decision of Brown versus the Board of Education fit the originalism theory. Okay? Now, keep in mind, this is, Brown was decided post-Civil War, okay? It was decided that equal protection under the law was granted to black citizens. Um, But let me go, let me back up here, okay? So, Siegel wrote that Brown v. Board of Education, which ended uh, mandatory segregation in our public schools, um, explained as this, the law, quote, the lawmakers and people, if, for instance, if this case had been judged on originalist principles, which it wasn't, quote, the lawmakers and people who ratified the 14th Amendment the post-Civil War amendment that granted equal protection under the law to black citizens did not universally embrace segregation, but they indisputably understood it to be constitutionally permitted. That's how originalists would see it, okay? So, but at the time that Brown was decided in 1954 and afterwards, nowadays criticism of Brown would make any federal court nominee really toxic something that we wouldn't be able to confirm them. So according to Siegel, quote, originalists have had to come up with remarkably contorted arguments 
to escape this obvious conclusion, end quote. Okay? So Professor Siegel also um, highlights an argument made by Stanford's Michael McConnell, and he called the argument unpersuasive, the idea that people living in 1868, when the 14th Amendment finally passed, and even afterwards, would have thought that segregated schools would, would have thought segregated schools to be illegal. Okay, um, but let me back up here. Here we enter Robert Bork. Okay, and he's considered the grandfather of originalism, and I call it insane reasoning that he used to justify thinly closeted racism. So Bork wrote in 1971 in a law review article that the 14th Amendment, quote, was intended to enforce a core idea of black equality against government discrimination, end quote. Siegel went on to say, quote, in short, he created an abstract ideal, opening the door to arguing that what equal meant in 1868 is different from what it meant in 1954 and today, end quote. Think about that for a minute. See, Brown versus the Board of Education that ended uh, segregation in our public schools was decided because based on the 14th Amendment that the mandatory segregation based on race was a denial of due process rights. Okay? But an originalist like Robert Bork would have said yeah, but if you're talking about equal, equal rights in 1868 wasn't the same it wasn't understood in the same way as what it meant in 1954 or today. Okay, talk about a convoluted argument, right? And the important point is this. If you take Robert Bork's argument from 1971, you could take that same argument and apply it to due process rights, the Establishment Clause against the Establishment and Force of One Religion, cruel and unusual, and other vague constitutional language. And I really think that's what um, originalists and conservatives like Bork were after. You know, am I saying that Robert Bork, in my opinion, was a racist and a misogynist? Yes, I am. I, I think he was a rabid racist and uh, misogynist. And the idea of originalism gave him the pseudo-academic, pseudo-intellectual argument to say, see, I'm not really a racist, and I'm not really a misogynist, but, you know, this is what the founders wrote, so if you want to change the law, you're going to have to change the Constitution, which is practically impossible. Okay? And, you know, Eric Siegel, the guy who wrote this piece, Professor Siegel goes on to, to explain further. You know, he said, quote, a true originalist or textualist might also have to conclude that the entire Bill of Rights, including its protections for free speech, freedom of religion, and criminal procedure, would also be inapplicable to the states. Okay, end quote. And Siegel says this because the First Amendment, if you look at the actual wording, it only limits the power of Congress. And that, and what Siegel's, that accusation Siegel's making was backed up by, you know, Chief Justice John Marshall himself, um, who, as documented by uh, www.law.cornell.edu, um, that, quote, none of the Bill of Rights limited state power. 
end quote. And this is what the GOP wants again. You know, what a lot of Americans don't realize is that the full Bill of Rights um, has, not, has not been fully applied to the states, most of the way, but not all of it. That's why we had horrible – that's why we had to appeal, um, you know, the horrible decisions like Plessy v. Ferguson that said separate but equal is equal with Brown v. Board, which said no, separate but equal in terms of our schools and segregation of our students is not equal treatment. I also, and this also goes back to, it all relies on the 14th Amendment. The reason why the states are forced, right now anyway, to respect most of the Bill of Rights is because of the 14th Amendment, that due process clause. If, you, if a state denies you free speech rights or voting rights, whatever, then you can go back and say, no, that's a denial of due process under the 14th Amendment. So I think this is why Trump and other ultra-conservatives and, the, and people in the Federalist Society and Judicial Crisis Network, I think it's why they hate the 14th Amendment so much, okay? Because this is about how the Due Process Clause extends the Bill of Rights to limit the power of states. Now, I'm aware this, this particular show originated in Florida. I'm in Missouri. And I can tell you right now that I don't trust the state government. You know, you talk about balance of power. Well, if you have a state legislature that is controlled by ultra-conservatives, then your only chance to get your rights if you are a minority that these conservatives despise is to appeal to the federal level. That's reality. Now, uh, this is why the 14th Amendment has been such an item of argument lately. You know, keep in mind, when Donald Trump blurts something out, as stupid as he is, as much as he lies, there's an occasion where he blurts something out like a little kid, and it actually contains a kernel of truth. And the 14th Amendment has been in the, 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 uh, the gun sites of conservatives for a long time now. The 14th Amendment due process clause does basically stops these rabid bigots from openly discriminating most obviously. If the 14th Amendment were limited, especially regarding the Due Process Clause, the Klan could write again openly, even worse than they do now, and those of us in the minority community would have virtually no, no way to appeal it. Nothing. So it is true that many justices, many judges, including conservative ones, did conclude that most of the protections of the Bill of Rights do apply to the states through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. They'd like to see that change. Many others um, think that that particular argument isn't justified by the history or the text of the 14th Amendment, and that is documented by Constitution mythbuster.com we go on to say one of my favorite scholars Erwin Shemarinsky who's dean of the UCLA uh, UCLA Law School at Irvine pointed out when he looked at what he called a serious text and history approach um, and again this is 
you know, as opposed to a lip service one, as Siegel said that called that case. So Shermerinsky was quoted by Siegel. I know this gets a little confusing here, folks. Um, right now, the originalist school is, they try and uh, basically apply it as best they can, and they pay lip service to the Bill of Rights. But what Shermerinsky is pointing out is that if these originalists were allowed to follow the logical train of thought of originalism, it would mean the end of judicial protection, quote, for liberties such as the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right to abortion, the right to refuse medical care, and the right to engage in private consensual homosexual activity. No longer would women be protected from discrimination under equal protection, end quote. And Shemerinsky's right. Okay. You know, for too long, you have judges and conservatives that say, well, that probably wouldn't happen. We wouldn't let that happen. You have to remember, the law is what the law says it is. And your rights, enumerated, and there are some that are unenumerated, but when they write something and they leave things out, when they write a bill, you need to be very worried. Would any of us sign a contract to buy a home or a car or get a credit card? Will we sign a blank check not knowing what all the rules are, willingly? But this is what conservatives want us to do. So you have to realize how many basic rights that we take for granted would be gone if a majority of the court used originalism fully in, quote, good faith. And this is not a new argument. Um, as late, as, well, really, as early as 1939, there was a legal scholar, UC Berkeley professor, Jacobus Tenbroke. And Professor Tenbroke identified flaws in originalist thinking. you got to remember, these conservatives are trying to jerry-rig their philosophy to fit the results they want, bottom line, and to cover up what they're really after, which is to deny human rights to the rest of us, to deny human rights to anybody who they don't consider to be as worthy as white, Christian, wealthy, cisgendered men who are, you know, who own property. That's it. Um, And Professor Tenbroke uh, wrote that, quote, one of the fundamental, he wrote about original intent, now we call it original meaning, and he said that original intent constituted, quote, one of the fundamental fallacies of the Supreme Court of the United States, end quote. And he wrote a five-part series in the California Law Review. Um, We're not going to go into all of that today. Some of the technical problems every day has kind of thrown me a little bit. I'm trying to look back and forth between the studio and, yeah, something went wrong. His interview's not running. So, Ten broke in a five-part series. And according to Professor Siegel, 
Professor Tenbrook showed, quote, through a detailed historical analysis of judicial decisions, that the justices sometimes used historical sources to support their legal conclusions, but often did not. Okay? The justices did selectively use historical sources, including the Federalist Papers, the actions of early Congresses, and the opinions of founding fathers. Um, Siegel goes on to say, according to Tenbrook, quote, it was hard to conclude. Tenbrook sum- summarized the justices weren't simply selecting evidence in order to justify the results they preferred. Okay. I know this sounds confusing. It sounds a little confusing to me, too. So let's move on here a little bit, okay? So Tenbrook, for instance, observed as an example how minimum wage laws for women um, were first viewed as unconstitutional. You heard me, that they were that minimum wage laws applied to women were found to be unconstitutional, that they were beyond, quote, the police power of the state. Okay? And this is documented by law.cornell.edu. Okay? Then they were upheld, quote, as rationally related to legitimate economic concerns. Same this same source, Cornell.ed. Okay. Um, Professor Siegel goes on to say, quote, Pointing to the reversal of numerous important cases by the post-New Deal court, Tenbroke observed these, quote, according to Tenbroke, quote, changes in the meaning of the Constitution did not result from altered judicial views as to, as to the original intent. They came rather from a different prevailing attitude in the court with respect to economic, social, and political policy, end quote. Okay. Professor Siegel goes on to say how modern originalists, quote, have signed on to many doctrines that are not justifiable on originalist grounds, and, end quote. And thank God they're not. Okay? So it gives you an example. And what all this is saying is that these people that claim to be originalists are not actually consistent in their findings. They sneak it in when they think they can get away with it, and when it doesn't work for them, it's gone. Because deep down inside, these conservatives know, in all honesty, that originalism, if you take that theory to its logical conclusion, would basically rescind, take away a majority of rights granted to everyone and would only, would only leave rights for white Christian men who own property. That's it. And these conservatives know they can't quite get away with that. So they're chipping away at it, a little piece at a time. That's what's really happening here. And these professors have a long way of explaining it, but that's what it really is. Let's move on here, okay? Now, we have another article here, and this is by Erwin Shemarinsky. And uh, let's see now. This was written this past September in 2022. The uh, the headline is even the founders didn't believe in originalism. To follow, excuse me, to follow the framers' ideas, but the Constitution means abandoning their understanding of it. Okay. And I'm just going to read from this here. Quote: Originalism has reached the Shermerinsky. Quote: Originalism has reached great heights since it first came about in the 1970s as an obscure legal theory. Most current Supreme Court justices used originalism in their legal reasoning. Adherents believe that the Constitution has a fixed meaning 
and then it should be interpreted as it would have been back in the 1700s. Critics have made many compelling arguments against originalism, noting that it lends itself to a selective reading of history and that determining the founder's intent is nearly impossible, end quote. And this is accurate in my opinion, all right? Think about what originalists are saying. They're saying that, like Scalia used to say, that the Constitution is a dead document. And everything that it grants is only determined through the lens of the 1700s. And if you want to make changes beyond that, your only option is to write new laws. But if they're appealed, as we've seen many do on an originalist viewpoint, they will be taken down. So your only real option is to change the Constitution, which, as I said before, is nearly impossible. Now, there are many, like the late um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that said, no, the Constitution is a living document. This is really the argument shouldn't be about these tortured arguments over silly words like when Bill Clinton claimed the meaning of what the meaning of the word is is. It's ludicrous. This is about taking the promise, in my opinion, that is in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, all those pretty words, and when there is an injustice, correcting that injustice in terms of expanding rights, not rescinding them. Okay? So this, you know, Chemerinsky is identifying many problems in originalism, okay? He goes on to say that originalism, quote, is primarily about how courts should interpret the Constitution. That leads to an obvious threshold question. How did the framers intend the courts to do this? Put another way, what was the original meaning of Article Three, the section of the Constitution that creates the federal judiciary, in terms of how judicial review should be performed. This important constitutional question should be analyzed under the same approach as is used for all constitutional interpretation, end quote. Article 3, we look at it. Now, Shemarinsky goes on to say, quote, the answer raises significant problems for originalism. Nothing in Article 3 explicitly authorizes courts to review the constitutionality of laws and executive actions. I'm going to read that one again. This is Shemarinsky again. Quote, the answer raises significant problems for originalism. Nothing in Article 3 explicitly authorizes courts to review the constitutionality of laws and executive actions. Shemarinsky goes on to say, Article 3, quote, Article 3, Section 2 defines the types of cases and controversies, and the word cases and controversies are both in quotes, the federal courts may hear. But it says nothing whatsoever about a power to declare laws or executive acts unconstitutional. Nor is this power inherent in the authority granted to courts by Article 3. Even if federal courts could not declare laws unconstitutional, they could still exercise their constitutional authority to decide the cases and controversies that come before them. Federal courts could apply federal law law decide diversity cases, and resolve all of the other matters enumerated in Article 3, Section 2 without being allowed to invalidate a statute or executive action 
on constitutional grounds. No such power existed in English courts. One would think that if the framers meant for the Constitution to deviate from English law and practice in such a fundamental way, they would have been explicit about it. Translation, end quote. So translation, according to Shemarinsky, and this, this is a double-edged sword, okay? It could be used against an old decision like Brown v. Board, which ended mandatory segregation and unjust segregation in our schools, but this could also be uh, used to basically um, tell the Supreme Court, no, you can't toss row, but then you can never row either. Okay. This is, you know, once again, this is saying that unelected judges can't necessarily declare a law unconstitutional if you're really an originalist. Okay. Shemarinsky also goes on to say, nor do the records of the Constitutional Convention reveal an agreed-upon desire to give the Supreme Court the power to strike down laws or executive actions. The crucial point is that judicial review cannot be justified by either the text of the Constitution or the framers' intent as expressed at the Constitutional Convention. End quote. Judicial review is what uh, the Supreme Court uses to justify its existence. You know, the Supreme Court is a court of appeals, but they don't actually hear cases per se. They hear cases decide is something constitutional or not. But again, according to what Shemarinsky is saying, if you're really an originalist, then the Supreme Court or any federal court, they don't have the right to do it. So the originalists are actually breaking their own code when it suits them. Uh, now, Chemerinsky goes on to talk about how Alexander Hamilton argued for a power like this in Federalist Number 78. Um, so, you know, it was assumed that judicial, perhaps judicial review would exist. But Chemerinsky calls this a flimsy basis for such an important authority, an authority that's really been kind of a mainstay to American constitutional law. Since it was created in the infamous case of Marbury v. Madison in 1803. Okay? And so Shemarinsky asked this very critical question quote, With no authority for it in the text of the Constitution and no desire for it recorded at the Constitutional Convention, how can we conclude that the original intent of Article 3 was to allow the Supreme Court to decide the constitutionality of laws and executive actions? End quote. Shemarinsky goes on to say, quote, this is another saying it, a commitment to originalism, one might argue, requires abandoning judicial review altogether. It is incoherent to seek the original meaning for how the court should exercise a power when the idea of the original meaning of the Constitution was ever to give them that power remains unsupported. Okay. This is a long way of saying Shemarinsky is calling out the originalists for their hypocrisy. You know, originalists love to say the Constitution's a dead document. If it's not written there in concrete terms, then it doesn't exist. Okay, fine. But and I've and they, we've also argued that if you took originalism and and were faithful to the doctrine and and applied it faithfully to its logical conclusion. Based on the document we have right now, the U.S. Constitution, no one would have rights except white Christian men who own property. That's it. 
are white men who own property. Okay? Um, period. None of the rest of us would have any rights. That's it. And if you, again, follow originalism to its logical conclusion, the only way to change that would be to change the Constitution, which is nearly impossible. Shemarinsky goes a bit further and just says, if you're really an originalist, according to Article 3, the actual wording, there is absolutely no power of judicial review granted to the courts, especially the Supreme Court. None. But originalists, they love judicial review when they get to jerry-rig what's being done. Okay? And this is the hypocrisy behind the entire school of thought, which, again, Bork brought to the forefront to justify systemic racism, systemic misogyny, systemic homophobia, period. Nothing else. Systemic religious bigotry. That's it. Now, there's more here, but once again, that's what it's about. And it's true that the late Robert Bork has been known as, quote, the father of originalism, as documented by Chicago Unbound at universitychicago.edu. So, according to Robert Bork, basically his answer really isn't a solution. You know, Shemarinsky is saying that Bork, Bork is claiming, quote, originalist judicial review is just as incompatible with majority rule. Okay, let me go back a little bit here. Okay. Shemarinsky is pointing to another subtle problem with the originalist embrace of judicial review. Okay. Quote, Robert Bork, the late judge, known as the father of originalism, premised it as an answer to the problem of an unelected judiciary in a democratic system. Okay. End quote. So we've all complained about that. Supreme Court giving an example. These judges are unelected. Nine people decide what's going to happen. Okay. Shemarinsky goes on to say, quote, but Bork's answer is no solution. Namely, originalist judicial review is just as incompatible with majority rule as is non-originalism. Under both approaches, major, under both approaches, unelected judges rule on the constitutionality of actions by popularly elected officials. Originalists like Bork answered that originalist judicial review is democratic because the people consented to adopt the Constitution and originalism simply follows what was agreed to by ratification. To begin with, it is factually, and Chemerinsky goes on to say, quote, to begin with, it is factually wrong to say that, quote, the people consented to the Constitution because less than 5% of the population at the time participated in ratification. Okay? Chemerinsky goes on to say, quote, no women and no people of color participated, and only a small fraction of white men did. Moreover, not a single person alive today, not even a living person's grandfather, voted to the Constitution. If originalists consider it undemocratic that our laws are subject to the, to the approval of unelected judges who at least die, die or retire someday and whose replacements are appointed by elected officials, how much more undemocratic is it if society is governed by past majorities who cannot be overruled and are never replaced? That's a good question. Nor can the failure to amend the Constitution be seen as evidence of majority consent because amendment requires approval by a supermajority, two-thirds of both houses of Congress, 
and three-fourths of the states. Chemerinsky brings up a very important point. The Constitution was written over 200 years ago. It was written by a very small minority of white men who owned property. Besides the, the bigotries of the day in the late 1700s, those people that ratified the Constitution have locked us in to those injustices, and it's almost impossible to change it if you're truly an originalist. Just is. Um, because those past majorities, you can't argue with them. They're not replaced. They're gone. This is the problem with originalism, saying the Constitution is a dead document. That's absurd. No law should be considered dead, 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 as, as Scalia loved to say. Laws evolve. They should evolve with a, an intent to expand human rights, not take them back. Okay. Now, there's more to this, and like I said, um, I'm not going to go into this in full detail tonight, um, largely because, you know, once again, um, I'm checking, I'm trying to do two things at the same time, I'm checking what's happening with Rick's interview. Now it's over with. I We'll try and run it again. But this is what we're talking about. Um, you know, there's another interview in Salon that Paul Rosenberg conducted in September of 2022 where he interviewed Erwin Chemerinsky. And the headline is how Justice Scalia created chaos. Originalism is just right-wing ideology in disguise. And I agree. And it talks about um, there's a new there's a book that Shemarinsky, uh is releasing soon. It's um, titled "Worse Than Nothing: The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism." This is not going to be the only time we discuss this. Okay, I just wanted to kind of go over it in some basics tonight. Okay. Um, and we will kind of go from go from there. Okay, this is not the first. This is not the last time we're going to be discussing it. Okay, so this is what we're talking about here. Now I'm going to go back to the show and I'm going to see if I can actually play Rick's interview. Let's see if it if it plays. So once again, we're going to see if the interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee will play. Here, Rick Spiesek and Wendy Lynn Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome my guest, Professor Wendy Lynn Lee of Bloomberg University. Um, now, now Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania, because we are integrated with two other schools, sadly. Can't sadly. win for losing. Can't win but that's okay. Luckily, I have an educated person in front of me who can correct me in these matters. 
Well, professor, you're a philosopher, professor, and you have several other related areas of study. Uh, you have paid quite a bit of attention to, should we say, the insurrectionist and their ilk. Uh, I wanted to ask you some questions. I, I would, I, I imagine you had a chance to at least view some of the hearings. Yes, often, often on um, because they occur during the day when I'm in class. But and then I would watch the news later, of course. Yeah, um, I was wondering. Uh, let's let's start off on a real positive note. Do you think there's a chance that the Justice Department is going to move eventually soon to to bring some some of these charges that have been surfaced uh, against these miscreants against from the plotters? Well, we see the foot soldiers facing some kind of justice, but I'm wondering, do you feel confident that the organizers are going to face some some consequences? I think some of them, yes. Um, I think it's hard to know who. I think I think some of the Oath Keepers, even at the organizational level, and the Proud Boys, um, and some of those folks have already faced indictment. So yes, and it and I was heartened to see that among I. It was either the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys that there have been some organizers against whom charges have been brought who were not on the scene that day, but were, it was so clear that they uh, were the architects and long in advance of the insurrection. So I'm somewhat heartened to see that that is the case because it says, it tells us that the Justice Department doesn't necessarily have to have people on site that day to bring charges. And I think that's a very important legal, um, it's important legally um, because it means that they're willing to reach beyond that original day. So I'm somewhat heartened, we, we shall see, but I'm somewhat heartened by that. Well, you know, I just watched um, All the President's Men. And one of the things that I, I, I kind of felt there was an interesting resonance where on the one hand, these guys were trying to contend that they were alone. They were acting on their own. This was just a band of two-bit burglars. But then, of course, the question was raised, but you have a walkie-talkie, and somehow there's attorneys showing up. And it reminded me that there is enough footage of the advanced planning yeah, of yeah. Stone and Bannon and talking about fuck the vote and it doesn't matter. Oh, and I think the evidence is massive. I think it I think it would be stunning if they didn't bring charges. I just I'm just cynical enough at this point and jaded enough at this point that I'm sort of a I'll believe it when I see it, but it's not because there's not enough evidence. There's plenty of evidence. Yeah. I, I think you know, God bless stupid criminals, that they would pay someone to videotape. Stupid and arrogant. planning. Yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw a lot of that. Yeah, and just the the arrogance of that, um, the self-absorption involved in 
in that, I, you know, Roger Stone, he's just a piece of work. I'm Bannon, right? I mean, they're just, they're, you know, the piece of work is the language that seems appropriate to these guys, that they, that they think that they are this untouchable. And of course, they could be taught that they are that untouchable if they do not face charges. So, you know, they've, they've got to. I just don't know if they will. Yeah, you know, it seems to me, you know, the defense of Garland is he's an institutionalist. And no one's ever charged a president with insurrection because we haven't had an insurrection as president. How hard is that? All that completely irrelevant. I, I, you know, I don't care if it's never happened before. I, I just, I find that just kind of excuse mongering. I care about whether the evidence supports the charges. It's clear that they do. It's just, I don't know how much plainer it could be. So it's just a matter of will at this point. You know, one of the things that troubles me even more, even more than the insurrection, even more than the out in the open planning for an insurrection, is what seems absolutely Clear that what we have been calling the Secret Service is yeah. completely off the reservation, a hundred percent. No, some. I think that what we may learn going forward, and I suspect in you know increments, as historians dig into it, and maybe it's going to be a while, is a Secret Service that that it, how do I want to put it that's just sort of riddled with uh, with these really far right trumpy maybe even pre-trump loyalists um, and ideologues um, who are who, who utilize this utilitarian right the ends justify the means sort of reasoning to justify, just horrific acts against the country in the interest of protecting a president who is not a president anymore, right? Who's not, who's who's gonna be out of office and whose aspirations are plainly, plainly authoritarian. So yeah, I, I find that just deeply disturbing. And and I don't know what's going to correct it. That's the worst part for me, honestly. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like how how is that going to be corrected going forward, right? How how is that going to be rooted out? It seems no great leap of, of imagination that when Pence refused to get in that car, that he knew that these people were not law and order types. Yeah. They were yeah. they were part and parcel of this insurrectionist and whether they were going to deliver him to the hands of the mob yeah. or they were going to secrete him to some different location so that he couldn't participate yeah. in the sanctioning or the, you know, the formality of the election. Yeah. Um, I, it, it is astounding. They me. weren't taking him out for cupcake. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I thought that the subtext, they showed footage, and I, I don't know if you caught it or not. They showed footage of Nancy yeah. and Schumer uh, 
dealing with it, yeah. working diligently to try to rescue not only the other Congress people, but democracy. And on their flip phones, like the, just their avenues of communication were abysmal. I just, I, I watched that footage there. I'm like, oh my God, how are we even running a country? Like how do we, <laughs> they look at what they're stuck with here. Like trying to save the, the, the ratification of an election. I just thought that footage was amazing and just and just distressing. Um, and they were trying so hard. I, I I have long respected Nancy Pelosi. She is certainly a hero, but oh my God, on that day, as far as I'm concerned, she saved people's lives. Absolutely, no question about it. You know, another thing that I think is important to mention. I was looking at this with one eye through what I'm going to call my Snowden perspective of data and data security and message security. Mm -hmm. Because if we take it as a given that these were known entities, we know now certainly and for sure that they had all of this intelligence at the front end. They knew that what was coming. For months. If if what they do to progressives and – humanists and environmentalists is any sign, they've known this for months and months and months. So admitting that they knew and looked the other way, or or worse, knew and actively participated, um, I think it's very telling that they scrammed their communications. Oh, yeah. Brazenly. Brazenly. Yeah. And I'm very resistant generally to conspiracy theories, like highly resistant. And and even here, I still, I still want, I really want to see all the evidence, but it just seems so unlikely that, that you know, they were just getting new cell phones, <laughs> that, you know, that it was just time for a trade. I just find all that so, and it's just such a bad lie. It's just such a hackneyed lie. Yeah, the, the no, guy at the it, Apple it, store, it, it man, he didn't know. It's a reason that, that, this, that this was not them trying to cover their patooties um, in order to not not be caught with respect to what they had done. And now they are caught. And now, and little by little, we're going to find out just how much and just exactly what they were doing in, in detail, I think. How, how'd you like to be an honest security guy on Joe Biden's detail right now? Yeah. 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 I mean, and like, God help us if the Republicans are reelected, right? And this version of the Secret Service becomes re emboldened, re empowered, bolstered in their um, subversion of democracy in line with um, elected Republicans um, who who are election deniers, like, you know, like, God help us, you know, after November 8th, if they come back into power. When, when you think about the fact that they, their model was tested and worked, that they have shown there is a path toward completely capturing the vote, uh, 
that that by electing these right-wing election deniers who will take over a state election system and either turn it off or rule from a legislative point of view, um, to say that our democracy such as it is, a representative democracy, is in danger is just such an understatement. Yeah, it's not – it's one thing – that the it's it's one thing to say that our democratic institutions are threatened, but it's still another thing to speculate what it is that could be coming that would replace them. Particularly if you're a woman and or black and or brown and or an environmentalist and or you know politically out of favor. Um, you know, I <laughs> I just it's just actually. I've never lived in that kind of country. I have a hard time fathoming what what that could be like. But you know, in that world, I am livestock and chattel. Um, Not to mention that you're a thinking person in an educational system that is actively dis- to be discouraged. And in a, and in an educational system in Pennsylvania, the state system of higher ed that wittingly, unwittingly, ignorantly is just kind of sliding along trying to appease the Republicans in our own state house um, and actively helping them gut higher ed, you know, even before, say, uh, you know, a Mastriani is elected. And, and I think he won't be. I think, it, I think it will still be the Democrat who's elected governor here in Pennsylvania. But you know, it'll still be a Republican legislature that's busy destroying education at every level. Um, you know, I live in a state that's riddled with book burners. The state that I'm living in now, they actually removed the minimum age requirement for marriage. I saw that. Yeah. Ick, 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 ick. Okay, I guess that's one way of solving sexual attacks to legalize them. You know. Well, you know the uh, the internet, the far right internet troll Matt Walsh um, was trending on Twitter the other day because he said, "Well, I, I'm just paraphrasing, but he said something on the order of, you know, adolescence is a made-up thing, right? Back in the day, 13-year-old girls." Well, they could be mothers. What a great thing to return to. <laughs> I just, is this, the, is this the world that people are going to have daughters in? I, I don't have kids. So. It, it is stunning and uh, so sobering. I, I'm actually of a mind that I think it would be just close to a miracle to have an actual election. I am so concerned about people who've been put in place, about election deniers being elected to offices across the country, um, yeah. and and whether there is a constitutional convention after that or Katie bar the door, um, you know. No, I, um, we're in trouble as a country. We've been in trouble as a country for a long time, um, and yet. We just don't seem to be able to take it seriously enough to act 
decisively at the in the voting booth. I work as a poll worker and 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 sometimes as a legal observer. Um, and this year, for the first time, I'm also just going to take Mace with me because I live in rural Pennsylvania, right? And you know, all my neighbors have Dr. Oz and Mastriani signs, right? Even though I have Shapiro Fetterman signs right in the front of my house. Um, but, you know, it's just, it all just feels like a tinderbox to me right now. Yeah. I, I um, after the uh, Supreme Court handed George Bush uh, the presidency, I determined that the following, following election, I would, I would be a poll worker. Mm -hmm. And uh, the area that we lived in was a rural, largely uh, mixed community. I would say probably... 60% Mexican, 20% black, 20% uh, white, and um, clearly democratically leaning, they never even sent people to collect their votes from our vote. The mayor knew I was attentive to these matters, and he called me saying that he got a phone call at midnight because he was frantically calling the county election department saying, you haven't picked up our votes. You haven't picked up our votes. You haven't picked up our votes. When are you coming to pick up our votes? And they said, um, listen, don't worry. Uh, we're going to send someone down there. They'll be there around midnight. Can you meet them at the polling center at midnight? And don't be surprised. They won't have an official car. It'll just be some guys. And he said, okay. And he stayed from midnight or from like 1130 to 130. Nobody ever showed up. Well, and, and that was that Terry was then. Arizona, right? Who interviewed yesterday? Right? You know, are are you going? If you if you don't win, are you going to you know respect the results of the election, right? And she just reiterates about how she's going to win, and so there won't be any issue, right? She she dodges it, right? But she's just a quake that left in denier, um, um, and yet photogenic and a good communicator and I think she could actually win. Yeah. And I think Oz could win. Um it, in virtue of the the ableist battering of John Fetterman and the willingness, especially, you know, out here in the rural counties, to believe that an auditory disability is a cognitive disability such as stroke. Um, my newspaper, um, the Press Enterprise, is just filled with this bile about, you know, John Fetterman's stroke and what that's, you know, done to his brain because people are just willing to be willfully ignorant about the difference between an auditory deficit and a cognitive deficit. Um, there's no reason to believe that he suffers any cognitive deficit. Um, that he has an auditory deficit clearly should not bar him from office. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the way politics are played out here. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, as you prepare uh, your students uh, to face that world out there, um, do you have some flexibility to discuss philosophies of government, uh, uh, 
the impact of some of these cross currents in our culture today? Or do you have a strict curriculum that you have to address step, 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 step? Do you have some flexibility still? So neither of those are, are, are really the case. I have I I still exercise complete control over my courses. Um, yeah, I I wouldn't I I would not do it any other way. I, I would retire. I I will not I will not suffer that. Um, on the other hand, that answering that question really depends on the class. Right, so right, it depends on what is appropriate to a class. So in medical ethics, right, we do a whole section on abortion, um, and you can't you can't adequately present those questions without also presenting the social, political, legal. Right, you can't talk about abortion without talking about Roe versus Wade and and 50 years, and then the end of Roe versus Wade. To do otherwise would be a distortion. So yes, within the context of, of what is appropriate to a particular discussion, right, in any given class. Let me pursue that just a moment more. Um, in in Pennsylvania, you know, of course now it's quote back to the states quote. Um, is That's is a lie. Pennsylvania <laughs> as long as it's convenient? Uh, is is Pennsylvania seeking to criminalize doctors? Are they seeking to track menstrual periods? So if the Republican candidate, right, if, if Mastriani wins, um, he has vociferously argued that he would like to see a constitutional ban in the Pennsylvania state constitution ban on abortion. Right? This is a guy who would criminalize doctors who wants to see abortion tried as homicide right this is a guy, this is a guy who dresses up in confederate soldier outfits right this is a guy who proudly declares himself to be a white nationalist i'm going to call that a nazi and i don't mean that in any sort of wow. hyperbolic sort of way i just think that's accurately descriptive um yeah, this is a guy who i so far as i can see would allow would force a rape 10 year old to die of the pregnancy Right, and force her to carry to term, you know, a kid raped by her dad. <laughs> right, and, and if she doesn't die, would jail her if she tried to abort herself, even if she was hemorrhaging to death. So he's that guy. That, that's what we're facing if that guy is elected. Because you know, we have a Republican legislature, right? So he'd get what he wanted. I'm, I'm puzzled because I know uh, that people sometimes need what can be wildly generalized to be an uh, abortifacient when they, they have endometriosis and, and certain other conditions that require, should we say, a medicinal treatment that could be construed that way. Mm -hmm. I, I'm puzzled why that case... Life. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, we're, we could, should he be elected, we could readily become Louisiana, Indiana, Texas, um, where a woman has to be on the brink of death before she is permitted to have to abort a dead fetus that is rotting. 
in her body. And while she's waiting for that, can you even fathom the psychological trauma? Right. She may never be able to have children again. Right, That psychological trauma is going to be with her as PTSD for the rest of her life. Right. What about a woman, say, my age, right, who doesn't think she could get pregnant, but then does, right, for whom it just might not be safe in virtue of age? Am I now required to sacrifice my life for something I just did not think could, in fact, occur, but sometimes does? Yes, the answer to that question is the direction this country is going is yes, because women are livestock. I, it, it's just, I, I, I can't, I, like, I can't, I don't, I don't even have words for what, what I think we're doing to women, and particularly poor women, and particularly um, women of color who have less access to medical care, right, right, I'm among the lucky women. The, the idea of, of freedom of religion evidently only follows to one particular sect of one particular religion. And very people strange. can afford to get to a blue state for an abortion or have a Herschel Walker to pay for it. I, I thought there was a quote from that uh, incredible footage shot of uh, Stone and those uh, right wingers where he said, look, let's just get right to the violence. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what more can you say? You know, I, not not a lot, not a lot. Uh, you know, I the thing I think that I sometimes find the most surprising about all of that are the people who pretend to be surprised because we exhaust we we exhausted that opportunity a year ago, <laughs> right? We 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 no longer are entitled to be surprised about any of this. Disgusted, maybe horrified, right? But no, we're no longer entitled to be surprised. This writing was on the wall years ago. Um, I, 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 doing a little bit of prep for our, our meeting, I, I came across a quote from Rhodes of, uh, I think it's Oath Keepers, who yeah. said that he called uh, Roger Stone uh, immediate, immediately after hearing the results and said, well, I've got this great idea. Let's just storm Congress. It was an idea, quote, suggested by a Serbian academic. Well, okay. Um, storming. It, it, then the article went on to say, and, and I, I don't know who, what editor would let this pass, the the writer then editorialized saying, "Wow, that's really that's really stunning. The co what a coincidence! You know, when they tell you what they think, and you're not listening, that's not on them." And, yeah. Uh, and there's a kind of like fool me once kind of thing here, right? But you know, at, at some point we just are not. We're no longer entitled to be stupid. Well, Professor, I know your students are prepared to deal with this world. You have helped them, you've guided them, which is the role of an educator, 
to, to use their own minds, to understand their own hearts, and to look at the world with open eyes. Uh, I, I, I thank you for the work that you're doing. We can only I, yeah, I mean, I try. I try every day. I try really hard. I, I, how successful I am, I guess, you know, I hope. <laughs> wow. Uh, any final thoughts you have? Uh, uh, you've been watching this, this right-wing thing for a long time. I'm sure you were, as you said, anybody's, you're no longer entitled to be surprised. Um, any final thoughts? Vote. Vote Vote straight ticket Democrat. Um, don't vote third party. Right? We might love the Greens, but not, but, you know, right now, right now, man, we just got to save the Republic. Right? That's, that's all we got to do. Right? We, 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 can, we can go Green Party later, but right now, you just got to vote straight. You just got to vote straight Democratic ticket, even if you don't like the candidates that much. Like you just got to hold. You just got to do it. Yeah. Right. Um, well, thank you so very much, Professor. I, as always, I enjoy speaking to you. You you have such a clear, thoughtful, insightful mind. Uh, it, it's an honor. Thank to you. Speak with you. Yep. You bet. Have a lovely evening. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, so we finally got Rick's interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee um, of the Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania. So we had some technical difficulties today, and I admit it kind of distracted me when I was doing my piece. Um, just chalk it up to ain't, ain't technology grand, and, you know, I'm a bit of a dinosaur, okay? I did not train as a you know, a tech engineer, so I muddle through as best I can. All right. And once again, we're going to be talking about originalism more in greater detail because the judicial doctrine of originalism, one, is something some conservatives made up. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say anything about this inst this particular document will be interpreted in an originalist fashion. Nowhere. Okay? So we pointed out the basic hypocrisy of it all, and we'll go into more detail at a later date. All right, so now we come to my favorite, my favorite part. This is the Jackass of the Week Award. Here we go. Progressive News Network's Jackass of the Week Award. Brayon, Brayon. Okay. So today's Jackass of the Week award goes to Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. Let's hear some more brain for Governor Youngkin. Again, hypocrisy really makes jackasses of so many people. So this deals with specifically the social studies and history curriculums in Virginia. Now, there's an article here from WTOP News, uh, Virginia News. It's written by a reporter named Melissa Howell, and it was just November 19th, just a few days ago. And hopefully this thing isn't going to bleep out on my computer. The headline is, Youngkin Responds to Backlash over proposed Virginia school history standards. This is about whitewashing history, all right? The bottom line is this. The GOP has openly embraced 
as we've said many times before, white supremacy and what can only be called neo-Nazism. The reason I put the two terms together is quite simple, all right? White supremacy is the foundation of Nazism. And yes, I have proof. If you go to the old writings of Adolf Hitler and the propaganda that was written by his, his dedicated lieutenants, one of the central reasons why Hitler went after, for instance, the Jews is because we were not regarded as white. When Hitler wanted to justify, if you will, a genocide, so that would result in a purely Aryan race, Aryan being the whitest of the white. Guess where Hitler looked for inspiration? The South and Jim Crow. Make no mistake about it. So when I compare white supremacy and racism to Nazism, it is an honest comparison. And part of it is whitewashing, in other words, censoring the full teaching of history. So that white Christians come out looking like innocents. So apparently, to, according to this article, there are proposed changes to the state's history standards. And these proposed, these proposed changes are getting some criticism, ironically, from Governor Youngkin. Quote, Youngkin recently expressed disappointment with his administration's latest proposed history standards released last week. He acknowledged omissions and mistakes regarding how race relations would be taught according to the Richmond Times Dispatch, end quote. Quote, Youngkin says he wants to make sure all aspects of history are represented as his administration works to draft changes to what kids in grades K through 12 will learn in history class, end quote. Now, there's a quote from Youngkin. He said, quote, I said from the first day, I want us to teach all of our history, the good and the bad, all of it, end quote. Now, basically, this his comments came there were some concerns expressed over the latest proposal for history standards in Virginia. It was rejected by the Board of Education, and the board pointed out, quote, the draft language implied there were several causes for the Civil War besides slavery. Furthermore, it said, quote, Juneteenth and Martin Luther King Jr. were also omitted from the holiday sections in elementary education, end quote. It goes on to say also, quote, another concern included a reference to Native Americans, get this, as America's first immigrants, end quote. And that's according to State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Jillian Bilal, who has apologized for the reference since then. Um, the reason why this is so hypocritical, Glenn Youngkin ran. One of his big issues was to fight what he called wokeism. Now, for those of you that don't like the idea of being woke, you know, it's a term that's borrowed from basically Generation Z. And woke really means that you are basically open-minded enough to study the full history of our country, okay, and other countries as well. If you're woke, that means you are a truth seeker, period. That's it. But because the term woke came from Generation Z, specifically uh, young black youth in Generation Z, these white bigots are just all in a lather. They're foaming at the mouth, you know, whatever. And Youngkin ran on a ticket where he was going to fight wokeism, all right? He ran.
on a ticket of explicit bigotry, explicit racism, explicit misogyny, explicit religious bigotry, including anti-Semitism. And now he wants to teach the full history? Really? Good Lord. Absolutely absurd. But he's trying to basically rewrite the narrative. So it looks like white Christians are the innocent victims and communities of color and religious minorities and women that are feminists, that we're the problem. Okay? We're not the problem. Okay? Let's put bluntly, there's another piece here, and it comes from a source, none other than The Economist, which is hardly a flaming liberal publication. And this is a piece that was written, actually, I guess it was written by staff because it doesn't list an author. Uh, it was published November 17, 2022, a few days ago. And the headline is, Glenn Youngkin is a kinder, gentler Trumpist. Virginia's governor has a unique approach to adapting Donald Trump's politics. Okay, so that is a polite way of putting it. Okay, and it goes on to say, you know, it compares Ron DeSantis. He's mastered, quote, the Trumpian skull. Um, You know, Ted Cruz, according to this article, is, quote, doubtless still practicing in the bathroom mirror. Again, the Trumpian skull. Quote, but the gangly, even goofy Mr. Youngkin seems incapable of being less than a bullion, even at 8 o'clock on a recent morning as he bundled his six-foot, seven-inch frame into the backseat of a Chevrolet Suburban and discovering Lexington began joyfully recounting tales of the six years he lived in London, end quote. Okay, so basically, Youngkin is trying to put a smiley face on the fascism of Trumpism. That's it, Blunt, put bluntly. He's trying to put a smiley face on the fact they are censoring our public schools. They are censoring our teachers. They are lying about our history. Mr. Youngkin doesn't like the fact that the wealth of this nation was built on the backs of black slaves. And then after slavery stopped, it was built on the backs of black workers during Jim Crow, and it was built on the backs of immigrant and child workers as well. There's nothing wonderful about that. There's nothing uh, uh, positive. You know, the fact that the curriculum leaves out Juneteenth, leaves out the existence of Dr. King. Where do you think the curriculum comes from? Who do you think appoints the Secretary of, uh, the, the Secretary of Education in a given state? The governor. But now he's blaming that person for following his orders, apparently. Okay, there's also another source, which basically is from the Leadership Conference Education Fund, and this is a press release, April 6, 2022. The headline is, Black History is American History Campaign, and it's launched in response to Governor Youngkin's whitewashing. Okay, so I'm going to check our time real fast here, make sure we're not going to run out of time. And I'm just going to read straight from it, quote, in response to Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's so-called tip line, keep in mind, Governor Youngkin set up a tip line where bigoted, racist parents could report teachers that had the gall to teach the truth about history. But, quote, in response to Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's so-called tip line to report teacher behavior and his executive order prohibiting the teaching of so-called, quote, inherently divisive concepts, 
the Leadership Conference Education Fund, NAACP, and People for the American Way today launched the Black History is American History campaign, an initiative to elevate the central role of black history in American history and push back on the whitewashing efforts of Governor Youngkin, end quote. Okay? Quote from Wade Henderson, who's the interim president and CEO of the Leadership Conference Education Fund, and this was back in April, quote, Governor Youngkin's misguided and ignorant attempt to whitewash history and gag educators only builds on the legacy of discrimination against black and native communities across Virginia, end quote. You have to remember, calling the indigenous people on this continent, what we used to call Native Americans or Indians, to be more ignorant, calling them Americans' first immigrants, they originated here, white folk. White Christian folk are the first immigrants here. Okay? So Mr. Henderson went on to say, um, quote, We are here to say that our children deserve access to inclusive and accurate history, whether they are black, Latino, white, Native American, or Asian American. We owe our students the opportunity to wrestle with the difficult aspects of history so that they are prepared to create a more just and equitable future. Mr. Um, Mr. Henderson goes on to say, quote, censoring history, and this is censorship, quote, censoring history, banning books, and restricting classroom conversations are the acts of far-right fascists. The mere fact that Governor Youngkin is following in those footsteps should be very, very disturbing for all Americans, and that is according, I stand corrected, to Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the NAACP, Okay. And then Mr. Johnson, that first quote, and then Mr. Johnson went on to say, quote, Americans are black. Americans are gay. Americans are immigrants. Americans are transgender. Americans are Asian, Native American, Latino. Suppressing any community from our children's history lessons, books, and classroom conversations will raise a generation that is ignorant, intolerant, and divisive. We live in a democracy, and we believe in inclusion, freedom of speech, and freedom of thought. We cannot allow a United States governor to follow in the footsteps of racist, fascist regimes, end quote. And I couldn't agree more. So for that reason and so many others, we are awarding Governor Youngkin our Jackass of the Week Award. Pray on, Glenn Youngkin. Pray on, you stupid jackass. Okay, I got a little emotional there. As a former teacher, I become irate when somebody wants to censor the rights of teachers to teach the truth. Okay, we're going to be talking about that more too. Anyway, that's our show for tonight. Um, In spite of the technical difficulties, I hope you at least learned something and enjoyed it. We will be back next week. just want to let you know we're going to be running the environmental justice report and some other great stories Um, presently i'm working on a piece on originalism that will most likely be published in buzzflash Um, you can find my writings you just google my name janine maloff you can find the old writings on huffington post you can find buzzflash nation of change op-ed news eurasia review and others So um, I just want to remind everybody, this show stands for tolerance. It stands for free speech and true democratic rule. 
and we will fight against the fascism that the GOP has embraced no matter what. Okay, Mr. Youngkin is just like George W., okay? This kinder, gentler conservatism, which was, again, the style changed, but it was the effects were just as vicious as anything Trump did. So it doesn't matter if George W. and Michelle Obama are Skittle buddies or whatever candy they share. Mr. Bush's policies are just as egregious. In fact, the GOP has embraced this since the Powell memo in the early 70s and has pushed steadily since Reagan. And we will continue to expose this fraud. Again, I hope you learned something. Um, And with that, I say good night. God bless us and keep on fighting the good fight. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.